This is Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. I'm recording this actually from the side of the road in Fargo, starting my Christmas vacation. Happy holidays, hope you're all getting some time off too. So, if you're like me, you're mystified by President Obama's foreign policy, especially when it comes to Syria and that infamous red line he drew. Well, Derek Cholet, former Obama Defense Department official and author of The Long Game, How Obama Defied Washington and Redefined America's Role in the World, is here to explain it all and why President-elect Trump's picks to head the Pentagon and Homeland Security are actually good hires. You can hear that right now. Derek Chalet, thanks for being on Cape Up. Thanks for coming in. It's great to be here. So, when did your book come out? June? Came out July. July. And July. so the name of it is The Long Game, How Obama Defied Washington and Redefined America's Role in the World. Give me the two-minute synopsis of your argument in this book. Sure. So the, the title, The Long Game, has a double meaning. What I try to do in the book is talk about in foreign policy, President Obama's strategy, which I call the long game strategy. On many policy issues, he's been determined to put the U.S. on a course for long-term success, even if that means in the moment, there's been a lot of criticism and uncertainty about what we're doing in the day-to-day. And some of the issues like climate change is a classic long game issue. It's a way to try to position the U.S. to project its leadership and be able to bring about positive change in the 21st century. That's a long game. The second meaning of the title is I contend in this book that in history's long game, if we think about Obama uh, from the perspective of 20 to 30 years from now, his presidency and foreign policy will be remembered as consequential for the better for the United States in the world. So what I try to do in this book is draw on my experience serving in the Obama administration at the State Department and the White House and the Pentagon to tell the story of Obama's foreign policy in terms of the big picture, but also in terms of some of the more challenging situations he's confronted around the world from Libya to Syria to Iran to Egypt. Uh, Drawing on my experience, it's not a memoir. It's not about my experience. This isn't the typical Washington book that, you know, trashes your former colleagues and Mm -hmm. talks about how they screwed everything up. And if they'd only listened to you, everything would be great. Uh, (laughs) So, but I, you know, I try to, I try to talk about what I experienced uh, being Mm -hmm. on the front lines of some of these issues for six and a half years, uh, and then give a sense of where I think we're heading as a country. So nothing crystallizes the sort of complexities of Obama's foreign policy and America's role in the world than what happened in the late summer, early fall of 2012. And that was President Obama's decision to not use military action against Syria for and Bashar al-Assad, the dictator of Syria, for his use of chemical weapons on his own people. Right. The president had made it clear that that's a red line. Yep. You use chemical weapons, we're coming after you. And right. even up until the very afternoon when all of Washington was abuzz about today is the day when, when the United States is going to strike, and then the news broke that the president had changed his mind. The president's critics say that moment there, and I think even Secretary of State John Kerry has even come out mm-hmm. recently and said that this this so damaged America's standing in the world. Mm-hmm. What is your view of the president's decision making on that 
and to the question of what this meant to America's standing in the world. Yeah, so I, I have a bit different take on the red line, and it's the first chapter of my book is entitled The Red Line. I was serving at the Pentagon uh, in 2012-2013 when in August of 2012 was when Obama uttered the red line for the first time in an answer to a question by Chuck Todd posed to him at a White House press conference. And then in August 2013 is when Bashar al-Assad used chemical weapons and the red line was crossed and we were confronted with what to do about it. And my job at the Pentagon at the time was to help plan for the strikes, try to get other countries to contribute their capability to conduct airstrikes. Unfortunately, only one was willing to step up at the time. That was France. And then when President Obama decided to go to Congress, help make the case to the Congress for a vote to authorize uh, this use of force against Syria. And what ended up happening was something that none of us expected or really imagined possible, to be honest, which was an agreement brokered in part by the Russians with the Syrians to remove peacefully 1,300 tons of their declared chemical weapons. Actually, chemical weapons that they had not declared prior to that I was going to say, that was one of the things that came out is that they finally acknowledged acknowledged it was there. Exactly. And so what I get at in terms of the debate about the red line, because there's no question that when it comes to the critique of Obama's foreign policy, this red line episode is at the epicenter of the critique. But when I think back in terms of our recent history, in Iraq— The United States went to war in the early 2000s to deal with a weapons of mass destruction threat that turned out not to exist. And we're still dealing with the strategic consequences of that decision today. In Syria, the United States did not use force and ended up dealing with a weapons of mass destruction that did exist and was, in fact, far worse than the CIA wrongly estimated the Iraq threat to be. And yet that's seen as a strategic failure. And sort of what does that say about the debate about America's role in the world, the use of force, and what our national interests are. The Syria question to me is, there's, it's in two parts. For the first several years of this crisis, the chemical weapons threat was by far the number one concern the Obama administration had. And it colored every aspect of our decision-making about Syria because we were worried about the disposition of those 1,300 tons of chemical weapons, which we believed exist. We had very good intelligence sources uh, on that. But of course, as you noted, Syria didn't, hadn't declared it yet. Our Israeli friends were very worried about Syria's chemical weapons because that was an existential threat to Israel that they had no military answer for. So as I was sitting in the Pentagon going, if we could solve a problem, which was Syria's chemical weapons threat without using force, I was for it. So that's what we did. That's separate from the issue of the use of military force to try to shape the dynamic of the Syrian civil war which was separate from chemical weapons. And so there's a big debate even today about where the United States should be using its force to try to get Assad out of power, uh, to try to put more pressure on the regime, to try to support the opposition. That's a separate issue than the chemical weapons issue. Looking back, we could say we could have done some things differently, although I'm not convinced that there were better options available to us at the moment. I am with President Obama on this overall red line issue, I don't think any of us should regret the fact that we got 1,300 tons of chemical weapons out of Syria. To the people who were hoping for an airstrike to happen against Assad, let's say President Obama did decide to do it. What's the upside and what are the downsides? There could have been upsides, but they're harder to see, to be honest, because the, the strikes that we were planning... Uh, would not have eliminated all 1,300 tons of the chemical weapons. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why so many members of Congress 
in 2013 were reluctant to give the president the authority to use force against Syria because at best, the estimates were it would have taken out 25 to 30 percent of the chemical weapons. So we would have had a large chunk of those chemical weapons being still intact, which could be used by the regime, or in many ways more concerning, could have been left unsecured and available to extremists. And so, you know, I run this counterfactual. If we had used force as we were advocating prior to this opportunity to get rid of the chemical weapons peacefully, if we had gone ahead and used force, if we and, and we actually confronted this this decision, which when the Russians approached the United States with this possibility of getting rid of the chemical weapons peacefully, there was a decision of should we take the Russians, should we test this, should we take them up on it? I think if we had decided then not to take them up on it and said, you know, we've we've made this pledge to use force, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen after we do it, but because our credibility is so important or because our honor is at stake, we've got to go ahead and do it. And as I said, that would have taken care of only a fraction of the chemical weapons. And then if one of those chemical weapons had been used against Israel, against the United States, had gotten in the hands of terrorists, who do you think would have been held accountable for that? Barack Obama. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, Gee, then, then, then people would be saying today, why did Barack Obama not take this great deal? Because he needed to uphold his honor? Because he needed to maintain this sort of mythical credibility? And Well, let's talk about this, because for a lot of people... Honor and the question of the United States keeping its word, the question of the president of the United States, when he makes a threat, he better follow through on it. Isn't there some validity to that argument, especially on the world stage when you're dealing with people who are trying to figure out, do we take the president seriously? Is the president strong? Is the president weak? A lot of the president's critics say that this showed weakness. So I don't see how getting Syria to to get rid of 1,300 tons of chemical weapons peacefully shows that we're weak. I mean, my view at the time, that's what great powers do, actually. You get people to do things without having to use force. Also, by the way, remember, it was the threat of force and the, the buildup to these airstrikes that caused the Russians to come in at the last minute to say, let's try to cut a deal here, and I think brought Assad to heel. In fact, it's interesting if you think about, and this is one of the reasons why I think this red line episode is is seen as a blight on the president, is because it was improvisational. I mean, really, from start to finish, it was improvised. I mean, the original utterance of the red line was an answer to a hypothetical question posed to the president by Chuck Todd. You know, what would you do if chemical weapons got on the loose and we knew we thought he was going to use them or whatnot? And then that's how the president answered the question. Well, that would cross a red line. If you think about it, the way out of this situation was Secretary of State John Kerry, in the build-up to the use of force, was asked a question, well, is there anything Assad could do that would prevent being bombed? And Kerry said, well, of course, he could give up all his chemical weapons, but he's never going to do that. Phone rings, the Russians say, let's try this, we're off to the races. There's, there's so many parallels to the Iraq war here, where we went through this entire dance with a dictator in the Middle East, Saddam Hussein, in the early 2000s over his chemical wep- or WMD, which included chemical weapons program, uh, actually, in that case, Saddam was turned out to be right in the sense he was saying, I don't have this stuff. And after we invaded, we found out he didn't, uh, although many people, including myself, believe that he did. In Syria, we had a similar situation, a dictator who wasn't uh, who clearly wasn't coming clean, you know, lying whether or not he had this stuff. Everybody believed he did. It was one of the largest stockpiles in the world. And he had it for a reason. He had it to, for prestige. He had it to be able to project Syrian power vis-a-vis his neighbors, his Arab neighbors, but also as a d- deterrent against Israel. 
That's why the Israelis were so focused on it. This is another one of the kind of ironies of this whole episode is that one of the few world leaders who stands up and says, thank you, United States, for doing this. This was a good outcome is Bibi Netanyahu, someone who the president, Obama, and has had plenty of disagreements with. Yeah, and right? can, can, we talk, can we talk about this crazy relationship between President Obama and Prime Minister Netanyahu? What's that about? I have not seen in all of my nearly 50 years on this planet seen two leaders of two allies who seem to really not like each other. Yeah, well, look, I, I actually don't think it's that unprecedented. I mean, under the George W. Bush years, there was a time where the German chancellor... Gerhard Schroeder basically ran for re-election, poising himself against George W. Bush. I mean, they were not friendly at all. And of course, at that same time, it was the era of freedom fries and all that with our French friends, oh, yeah, that, right? That, so that period in our so, history. Right, exactly. So, uh, which by the way, in terms of what's to come, you know, that may look like it was kind of preschool I know. And version we're, of, we're gonna of get insults to and whatnot. <laughs> but look, clearly, Prime Minister Netanyahu, President Obama, just plain don't get along. And there was a lot of mistrust at the at the highest level. I mean, but this is what I'm thinking that's kind of interesting, and I get, get at this in the book, is for folks like me who were, you know, down a couple levels from the head of state, the relationship in terms of our military relations, uh, our intelligence communities, uh, in the security sphere, the relationship's never been better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't take my word for it. Talk to Israelis in terms of the level of cooperation, the amount of support we give the Israelis, the amount of coordination that goes on. So despite all of this drama and, you know, angst at the highest levels and two two leaders who genuinely, I don't, did not get along. It it did not bleed down into the working levels. And in fact, the working levels, it, it only got better. Well, you know, how about we talk about the person who is his exact opposite? Yeah. President-elect Donald Trump could not be more different than President Obama right. on every level. Right. And given everything that you just said about U.S. foreign policy and America's role in the world, and yeah. here, what does it say to the world that the United States elected a man who runs completely counter to the person they've been dealing with for eight years, a man who has run on basically withdrawing America from the world? Yeah. Well, it's been deeply distressing. Many of us in the United States, uh, I think many around the world are still in a wait and see mode. And because Donald Trump has shown himself to be relatively flexible sometimes on his policy perspectives, um, kind. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and obviously some of the appointments he's made are deeply concerning. Some of them are give me confidence. Uh, you know, Who? So General Jim Mattis and General at Department John Kelly. Of Defense. Yeah, at the Department of Defense. And, and John Department Kelly. Two, two folks I worked with very closely in the Pentagon, I have a lot of confidence in, are good people, uh, believe in a strong defense, but believe in a strong diplomacy and development, believe in strong partners and allies, believe in a United States that's out there helping others solve problems, you know, who believe in our values, don't think that things like torture work, you know, so... But the, but the top guy... Well, believes- this is the question. No, no, this is... I could, I'm okay. just saying that's why there's still a wait and see. I mean, we don't... I mean, you know, one of the things Trump said a few weeks ago was after a conversation with Jim Mattis as well, hey, maybe torture doesn't work, right? Because someone as tough as Jim Mattis is saying he'd rather have a pack of cigarettes and a beer with mm-hmm. someone than torture him mm-hmm. um, in terms of getting information out of him. So I think a lot of allies are in a wait-and-see mode, but they are very distressed. And there's a question, I think, that, that we'll have to confront as a country is, does the goodwill and the kind of the so-called soft power benefit that we have 
gained as a country because of the Obama presidency, is that going to go away? You know, there's a lot of unknowns out there in terms of uh, we know what he said on the campaign trail. Governing's a whole nother deal here. So I'm hope I'm hoping for the best. But I think we can't fool ourselves that this is going to be a pretty tricky period. Yeah. And there's a lot of uncertainty. And that's here in the United States. But our allies have it even more. Right. Let's keep talking about staff. You talked about two generals yeah. who instill confidence in you. Absolutely. Can we talk about Lieutenant General Flynn, who's yeah. going to be the incoming national security advisor? Yeah. He's problematic. No? Yeah. Well, I mean, he has said a lot of things over the course of the campaign or before that are not encouraging. I mean, whether it's about Muslims, whether it's about Russia, whether it's about uh, how we should think about the use of force around the world. And again, campaigning or what you say on a campaign trail is often different than how you, you know, what you do when you're actually in office. And I think one of the great questions for those of us in Washington who follow this stuff for a living is how this process is going to work, right? If you're envisioning the, you know, who's sitting around the situation room table uh, at a time of crisis or at a time of just a tough decision. You know, with Donald Trump at the head of the table, you got Mike Flynn. All right. That's one perspective. You got Mattis and General John Kelly on Homeland. That gives me some confidence. The only thing I can I can say with with any degree of confidence is that we are entering a period of greater uncertainty and probably instability when it comes to our foreign policy decision making which is going to make it harder for us to tackle some of the toughest problems out there because we're going to be wrapped up around the axle of our own kind of internal crisis here. But with a president so erratic, and I know yeah. I, I hear what you're saying in terms of we have to wait and see, yeah. but everyone who's been saying, you know, Donald Trump's going to change, you know, you just wait, he'll get more serious. They said it during the primaries. They said it during yeah, the general. Absolutely. They're saying it during We've the We've been waiting for the normalization. Right. And it never happened. Yeah. And to my mind, it, will, it won't happen yeah. even after he takes the oath of office. Everything that we're seeing now will continue through the presidency. And it makes me wonder whether these two generals who you have high, great respect for, whether they will be in it for the long haul when they come to the realization or they realize or they tire of working for a person whose mind changes depending on the last person who talked to him or who doesn't listen to them at all. Yeah. Well, it's a good, great question. I mean, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Right? You know, I, I, I wrote a piece recently where I raised the, the question or the concern that for all this time, you know, through grade school and high school and college, we are taught that our, our founding documents, particularly the Constitution, is so strong. That is the foundation upon which our democracy rests and that it is a strong foundation. It is a reason why countries around the world, um, democracies at least, try to emulate our Constitution. But this election of Donald Trump, to my mind, has flipped my thinking on the Constitution 180 degrees. And just watching how he, how President-elect Trump has question the First Amendment. Uh, he's in violation of the emoluments clause. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't even say the right, word right, emoluments right, clause. Right. Um, that I'm now confronted with the fact that the Constitution is actually fragile. And the strength of the Constitution comes from the fact that the 44 men who have sworn the oath of office revered that document. Yeah. And right now, 
I haven't seen anything that gives me any comfort that President-elect Trump reveres that document, takes it seriously, goes the extra mile to be in the right uh, when it comes to the Constitution, that he doesn't threaten it. And so I say all that to ask the question about Congress, because Congress's role, as defined in the Constitution, is to be part of a a co-equal branch of government, provide checks and balances. But right now, Congress is in the hands of both House and Senate of Republicans. How confident are you that Congress will indeed take its role seriously and confront a a soon-to-be President Trump? It's interesting. I think for people of most of us, most of us, well, sir, people of our age bracket, uh, nearing middle age, right? I, say, I, Late, I know I'm older than you. Are. Nearing middle age, uh, it's been a while since we've lived through this, but we have. I mean, we've been through it before. I mean, Watergate was a reminder to many, many Americans that the Constitution was fragile, and we had a president who was testing the limits of that. There are some who may argue. I'm not one of them, but some may argue the impeachment period for President Clinton mm. was a test of the Constitution. I mean, That's we. True. You know, we sort of airbrush that out of our historical memories, but there was a trial of a president on the floor of the United States Senate. A um, popular president, b- b- though. Yeah, pretty remarkable, though, mm-hmm. if you think about it. I say this by way of gaining a little confidence that we have this has been tested before and we have we have been resilient and made our way through it. And those weren't necessarily pleasant periods in our history. I don't think anyone would wish a return to those days, but we may be heading into those kinds of days for the very reasons that you're you've pointed out. Look, I have I have some confidence, particularly in the Senate. There is a cohort of Republicans I think of as institutionalists. They believe that in Congress is a co-equal branch of government, that they live largely in a fact-based world. Uh, many of these folks were opponents of Donald Trump during the primaries. They were outspoken against him uh, in the general election. Uh, I can think of about 10 Republicans on, on the Senate side that that fit that bill. So I don't. This is not going to be a free pass for a President Trump. And I think one of the more interesting things to, for us to watch here is when, as president, when he does say or do something that is going to be over the line in terms of you know we call someone a name or there's something that comes out a la the the Access Hollywood tape that's going to mm-hmm. cause people you know f- f- journalists like yourself are going to ask legitimate questions to these folks like what are they going to do it what are they going to say about it. Um, or it's a policy decision. It's a, you know, we're going to reduce our commitment to NATO or we're going to cooperate with Russia on inside Syria, right, to keep Assad in power, something like that. We don't know. But someone like a John McCain, people like Lindsey Graham, they're going to stand up and they're going to oppose it. And then the president's going to respond to that. That's again, suggests to me that we're going to, pro- we're entering a period of internal crisis, of kind of perpetual scandal and turmoil internally here in the United States, which is going to make it harder for us to be a constructive partner of others in trying to solve problems abroad. Mm-hmm. Is this what you always wanted to do? This, when you, when, this when, being on this podcast? <laughs> yeah, yeah, big time. This why I've been trying, you know, I've been- oh, You've been I've auditioning been, all been these trying, years just pra- to be here. Practicing at home. I mean, yeah, the whole deal. Yeah. No, what <laughs> so, I mean is being in, being in the world of foreign policy and international relations, when you were 10 years old, did you think- I'm gonna I'm gonna be well working at the Department of Defense or no. I'm gonna be traveling the world. No, so no. here here's the deal. So I'm from Nebraska. 
from Lincoln, Nebraska. And so I, I was not a worldly guy growing up, but I was all, I've always been interested in politics and, and history of American history. I got more interested in the world when, when I went to college and uh, during the years I was in college was a pretty interesting period in our history, the late 1980s, early 1990s, end of the Cold War and all that. So um, that's how I got interested in the world. My first job in Washington was I was the research assistant to James A. Baker III, uh, oh, Secretary former, Secretary, Baker. former Secretary of State, former White House Chief of Staff. He wrote a book. Former Treasury Secretary. Former Treasury Secretary. Probably one of the, I would argue, the most important unelected uh, public figure of the, well, maybe since Dean Acheson mm-hmm. uh, of, the, of the Truman years. Um, a, a terrific guy, and, and it was it was a real blessing in many ways. My first job out of college was working for him for two years because I learned a lot. Right. It's January 20th, 2017. Mm-hmm. You're at home watching the inauguration with your, with your nine-year-old. Yeah. And your nine-year-old asks, Daddy, are, are we going to be okay mm-hmm. with this president? Mm-hmm. What would you say to him? So what I, and I've said this to him because we, you know, listen to the news driving in the car. I say, you know, it's going to be rough. Like we could have, we could enter into a rough period here. And unfortunately, the president-elect said some things uh, in the course of the campaign that are not easy or particularly good for children to hear. I mean, I think it's a reality a lot of parents uh, out there have been dealing with. But, you know, I try to remind him that we are, we are a great country. We're a country that did elect Barack Obama twice. Uh, we're a country that either somewhere between 2.5 or 3 million more of us voted for Hillary Clinton than, than Donald Trump. You know, we live in a city, Washington, that although it's got its share of challenges, over the 20 years I've lived here has become a better place. It's been become a more prosperous place. It's become a more tolerant place, a more even more diverse place. So, you know, the kind of I try to take a step back and remind my son or my friends who aren't in the business like we are in terms of living and breathing politics and policy that, you know, we've been through these challenges before in different ways. Uh, you know, as I said, the late 1960s, early 1970s were not calm, tranquil days. Right. And we've we've come out the better. Derek Cholet, Counselor and Senior Advisor for Security and Defense Policy at the German Marshall Fund. Thanks for coming on. Great to be here. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.